Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where each week we provide a fresh perspective on the events and technology driving the energy transition. I'm Peter White, CEO of Rethink. As usual, I'm joined today by our analysts, Harry Morgan. Yeah, he's fresh from his legendary hydrogen forecast, which has made a huge commotion in the marketplace. And now solar specialist, Andrew Swantonar. Hello. And our straight man for the podcast, our publisher, Simon Thompson, will pick out what he's what's impressed him in this week's issue. On the show today, we'll be discussing the huge ambition behind Scott, Scotland's offshore wind leasing round and the mess that Vietnam has got itself into by offering too generous a feeding tariff for solar. But first, let's talk about the new hydrogen report that's setting the world on fire right now. Harry, what are the key conclusions of the report? How did you uncover them? Yeah, so yeah, as you said, the hydrogen report's out this week. And obviously we're looking not only country by country and sector by sector through to 2050 in terms of hydrogen demand, but we're also looking at why that demand will be solely satisfied by green hydrogen uh, rather than any other types of hydrogen. I suppose the headline figures, uh, in terms of what you're asking for, we've got $10 trillion worth of investment through to 2050 in the actual hydrogen fuel used across... So that's so hydrogen fuel spend in the 30-year period? Yeah, so that's the, that's the amount of investment people will put into actually using hydrogen as a fuel in different sectors of the economy. So be that steel making, uh, be that within heavy trucking. I mean, we go into each sector in detail within the report. But this is really driven by the, the cost of hydrogen or green hydrogen falling by 95% over that time frame. And let's, let's grab that one straight away, because I get a lot of people saying hydrogen will never get any cheaper. Green hydrogen's not going to work. Blue hydrogen's going to be the cheapest. And that just plays into the hands of the oil companies. So let's just deal with that first thing up front. Why is hydrogen getting going to get cheaper? Okay, so I mean, the, the first thing to consider with this is the build-out and production capacity. Obviously, the production capacity for electrolyzers at the moment is very low. We only saw our first uh, electrolyzer gigafactory installed last year by ITM Power. Um, but over the past sort of year, we've seen that pipeline grow. So I think it's it's in the four figures in terms of percentage wise. And yeah, gigafactories popping up all over the world in different technology types around electrolyzers. So that in itself is a huge driver behind the economies of scale, especially if these electrolyzers, and especially within AEM electrolyzers, are going to be taking this commodified approach. I mean, we've seen with solar power, the costs fall by 23% every time capacity installed worldwide has doubled. Our figures are only relying on a 14% learning rate within electrolyzers. So we, we're, we're considering ourselves to be fairly conservative here. So so when we say 14%, so every time the, the installed base of electrolyzers doubles, it's gonna, the, the price is going to fall by 14%. Now, obviously, very low base. It doubles two or three times quite quickly. So that brings it down quite aggressively already. And then it starts to take longer to double the installed base over a period of time. Why 14 uh, percent? Why have you fixed on that figure rather than the 23 or 4 percent that solar had? So the 14 percent figure is based on a number of factors. Um, it's largely due to the way you can commodify electrolyzers and how that will vary across each sector. So electrolyzers generally won't be as focused on individual technologies of the solar sector, uh, which is why the figure is slightly reduced. But in terms of actually producing units at scale, uh, it's going to be much more, for example, than the wind turbine industry, where obviously you've got a, a smaller number of blades than we're expecting for actual number of electrolyzers installed. So the, the number of 14% based on sort of a number of techno- technological factors within that sector. I think by, I mean, we're expecting around 400 gigawatts of electrolyzers installed by 2030. And given the fact that we're only around 300 megawatts installed today, 
and that should take that that figure down alone. But we've also got to remember that a rapidly falling cost of renewable electricity to these providers, not necessarily to uh, your average Joe buying electrolyzed, of course, but uh, buying electricity in their household, but the people buying renewable power for industrial purposes will see a massive reduction in cost, especially through solar power over the, over the coming years. So, Harry, let's just say a year, 18 months from now, we'll be able to quantify and verify that fall uh, of 14%, you know, while doubling, and it might be higher, it might be 20%, for instance. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's something you will, it, you will be constantly changing as, as the market pro- progresses. I mean, we've, we're seeing so many different researchers claiming that they're going to increase production rates by 30% and cut costs by 50%. So if any of these technological advances actually happen, and I mean, so, at least some of them will, then costs have the ability to fall far below our cost curve. Okay, because because you're saying rights law is all about the same process, but just simply being improved, rather than a new process uh, coming along and and there being breakthroughs. They're extra. That that that'll drop the price even more. Yes, exactly. And the amount of R and D spend we're seeing these companies ploughing into electrolyzer technologies means that there, there almost certainly will be some sort of innovation that 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 comes in and cuts that cost. Even if we find another production method that's like the slightly cheaper. I mean, proton technologies is one that we've talked about in the past. Yeah. Um, and I mean, certain waste to hydrogen. Everyone seems to know about proton. No one seems to give them any credibility. No, exactly. I think they they probably marketed themselves wrong to start with. I think they they obviously using underground oil reservoirs to produce hydrogen has the the word oil in it, and I think that's something that people generally feel a bit worried about through the transition. But again, it's going to be a case of proving their pilot projects before they can actually. But that could be absolutely revolutionary if, for instance, the oil industry grabs hold of that process and licenses it. They can produce oil underground, uh, they can produce hydrogen underground, filter it, not never bring the, the, the CO2 to the surface. And and that, that, that could be something they get behind as a, as a counteraction, you know, a counterinsurgency against green hydrogen. And that would be an interesting dynamic to see play out over time. Yes, absolutely. Probably within a five year timeline that we will see that start to occur. Okay. Yet again, rethink. Only company that's going to actually put its balls on the line and say this: this is the rate at which the price will will fall. Provable. A year from now, everyone will know whether we're right or wrong. We'll of course be right, and it, it will of course be a conservative forecast. But your normal doubters out there will, will think, oh, this this uh, this can't happen. Uh, it didn't happen in the 1980s when hydrogen was first push forward so it won't happen now i know there are engineers listening to this podcast thinking yeah it's not going to happen it's going to more than happen we know that but in a year from that we can prove it and um, so anybody who wants to understand the the real detail rather than uh, harry give it give it all out over the podcast buy the report okay buy the report now it's four thousand six hundred dollars go to the website rethinkresearch.biz uh, buy the report and um and you can see the details for yourself, including the spreadsheets um, year by year as we forecast them. You can measure that. You can uh, build build your own models with it uh, and it can guide your business. Um, so with that, I think um, I'd like to just move on. I'm coming back to I'm, – I'm actually going to bypass you, Harry. I'll come back to the Scotland uh, offshore leasing round. And just let's go to Andres and talk about – 
the piece you've done this week in, on Vietnam. Just to remind everybody, uh, Vietnam had a very generous feeding tariff and, and was one of the largest installers of solar for a couple of years. And now we're in a situation where it's coming out with its new uh, its new plan for for energy. Billions of dollars may be at risk by being cut off from the, the feeding tariffs. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating country because of that kind of screw up where they they over incentivized a renewables build out in 2020. They cut the uh, subsidy multiple times. And uh, now what's happened is at least three gigawatts, maybe four gigawatts, depending on source of onshore wind projects that due to lockdowns weren't able to be completed uh, before the termination of the feed in tariff in last in October. And that means there's about seven billion dollars of investments that will just uh, lose out if 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 nothing changes if the government doesn't step in and say okay uh, we can retroactively allow these projects to be completed under the old tariff now who holds all those investments are they um foreign companies or are they local companies and are they backed by foreign banks or, or local banks um i think a lot of it well certainly the four billion in loans from banks will I, I would assume is almost all um, Japanese and uh, Western. And Korean. Uh, yeah, 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 some Koreans. Um, there are there are plenty of uh, Vietnamese developers involved. Um, so it's just a and and like you mentioned, it was one of the largest. It was actually in the second half of 2020, Vietnam was the third biggest solar market, and this is a country that's the same GDP per capita as India, but with only 100 million people. So. It's this blip that suddenly surged onto the scene and then disappeared again. And then another thing that I I thought was quite interesting is saying, well, you you have this solar installer business from last year. It's been shut down on the commercial side, but they still have the infrastructure. They still have all these little installer companies. And so how much will they install of like the three gigawatts of solar that's been approved, but now doesn't really have a business model? And it seems like maybe one gigawatt of that has actually been installed uh, just for uh, self-consumption. Okay, so self-consumption will um, will will effectively drive small businesses or or regions. Uh, small business, well, okay. actually large business. <laughs> large small, business. Okay. <laughs> and it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting because China, I think, has a pretty steady and consistent policy for developing renewables, and you you would think that maybe Vietnam could just copy them because they have the same government form, uh, basically. And I wonder, I, that's another fascinating sort of question is, is to watch Vietnam and question, are they going to come up with another smaller FIT, which has been suggested it'll just be lower than the past one, or whether they'll incentivize energy storage purely by having it as a co-located requirement with other renewables, or whether they'll go to a, a Western style auction system. I'm dying to them. I'm sure I'll go to an auction system at some stage. So I've talked about that for a while. But what's the, the wider context here is for the last eight or nine years, they've wanted coal and gas plants to be funded and they've been lining up funding for more coal plants, more gas plants. And all that funding is now being withdrawn um, through international pressure. Um, so the Chinese won't fund any more coal overseas. Uh, and, and then next door, the Japanese and, and the Koreans won't either. So we're now faced with um, if you're in your plan and you've still got a few coal plants you're expecting to be built, knowing that they won't be built, you've got all this this uh, renewables 
facility there. The, the biggest problem is you've got to somehow connect it. So you, you know, your transmission, you've got to get involved with a, a transmission spend. Yeah, I say in this article um, that there's up to 10% curtailment. You can look at my old articles on Vietnam to find a more accurate figure. I think it's maybe more like 7%. The, it's, it's, this, um, it's a long, thin country, and I think that's quite unhelpful. It makes it easier to end up with curtailment and uh, you know over, overdevelopment on the grid. So the national utility is, is still racing to catch up. That's right, curtailment okay. for renewables specifically. And it doesn't help that, that, that effectively energy in Vietnam is a monopoly. So we're, we're, we've only really got one energy company. And if you want to sell stuff onto the grid, there's only, there's only one customer. Um, we'll keep watching that. And, uh, and I think you know, Vietnam must be an interesting target, as in it's places in uh, South America as well, like Chile, for all solar developers to keep an eye on. Um, and we're just going to flip over now to the big story of the week, Scotwind. It was a bit of a surprise. 25 gigawatts of offshore capacity in a uh, in a sea lease, Harry. Yeah, I mean, it was full of surprises, the announcement of Scotwind uh, back on Tuesday, I think it was. I mean, we saw, yeah, as you said, we saw 25 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity awarded to 17 different developers uh, on, off the coast of Scotland. Um, the, one of the biggest surprises first off was that many, including ourselves and uh, what we'd published, had said that the the lease was going to amount around 10 gigawatts of capacity. So, I mean, straight up, that's a, a huge chunk of capacity. Of capacity for, I mean, it's more than half of what we've got installed globally now. I think we've got around 42 gigawatts of offshore wind installed. It will more than double what we've got installed within the UK already. So it's, it's a huge boost for the UK's 40 gigawatts by 2030 target. And it really will help us push beyond that um, going through to 2035. But um, we'll, I mean, will this actually happen? We often, we can see there is ambition from uh, what they hope will be a devolved Scotland or certainly the devolved Parliament. Um, and we can see there's lots of ambition there. But is there enough uh, demand uh, from Scotland? And, and if they uh, make excess electricity, can they export it? And have they got the transmission in place to export it? So will these come to fruition? Short answer, yes. I think they will come into fruition. One of the big parts of it is that 15 gigawatts is going to be floating wind, which is by far the largest chunk of floating wind we've ever seen awarded. And obviously, it, yeah, it's very much on paper at the moment. There's still a lot of sort of financing and planning work to have to go through for the project to actually receive the final lease and actually enter construction. But you've got to bear in mind that the typical lead time for these offshore wind projects is 10 to 12 years. I mean, we, we expect that to be accelerated and see the first projects online around 2028. Uh, with the latter coming through to 2035 but realistically as you've said scotland already on 98 percent renewables capacity in terms of its uh, its own power supply will be looking to export this into the rest of the uk whether or not scotland's part of the uk at that point or not but yes yeah, so this will and at the moment we've only got a capacity really to move around six gigawatts of power from scotland to the uk right. so there's going to have to be this huge investment in subsea uh, hvdc links and have to, uh, along with a lot of other infrastructure investments so we'll need ports that are capable of building and installing the floating platforms uh, i mean most of the the projects will probably use wind turbines in the sort of 15 megawatt capacity size so that will mean that we'll need new factories in the uk i mean that's one thing the uk government's been really criticized for in the past is creating this huge offshore wind industry and then just giving it to international developers so it'll be really interesting to see how it it, it tries to steer this towards local content but, but interestingly i mean i i, I know this is floating but this is these are a, 
off the shores of some of the most beautiful countryside in Great Britain. And the won't the Scottish public um, feel that they're going to what they gain in exporting electricity, they're going to lose in tourism? I don't think so. I think that's the real benefit here of using floating wind is that you'll be further than that. I think it's around 15 kilometres offshore that you need for the wind turbines to essentially be invisible. You certainly won't hear them at that distance unless the wind's blowing very, very severely onshore. But yeah. I don't think, and you've got to bear in mind these, a lot of these places are very remote. Obviously the tourism industry does exist there, but it's fairly scarcely sort of dotted around the coast. So as long as you're potentially off the coast of an industrial hub, then people aren't going to be complaining. And again, yeah, I think the fact that they're going to be that far offshore and there is this biosource floating wind, will their real template for other countries that will be facing the similar issues with fixed based offshore wind to really go ahead? So, I mean, that's Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. And I mean, it's a I, phenomenal amount of floating. I mean, if, if we go back to our original floating wind forecast, we probably forecast less than that by 2030 uh, in the first place. And, and for 15 gigawatts to be done in one country, I mean, aren't they risking the you know, disaster at sea? I mean, do, do people know enough already about floating platforms to be sure that they're going to stay up? We do. I think that we've seen some really good pilot projects within Scotland as well from Equinor uh, in terms of their uh, their designs on principal power. We've also got, and, the, and it really interestingly, a lot of the attention within this leasing round has, uh, and a lot of the awards have gone to joint ventures that include oil companies. So Total Energies have a stake, Shell have a stake, BP have a stake. Between that, the three of them, what percentage have they got? Uh, between the three of them, they've probably got around half of the half of the capacity with it, uh, to some extent. This is what we've been saying to the oil companies all along. This is a natural industry for them to get involved when they know about offshore platforms. They know how to, um, they, they, they pioneered them from being based on, on, uh, uh, on the bottom of the sea to being based, to being floating. And that's where most of these platforms are going to come from, from that, those team technology owners who, who they're used to dealing with. So it's a natural extension of the oil business. And if you add to that, um, using spare capacity to make hydrogen at sea as well, you suddenly have oil companies uh, taking ownership of renewables. Yeah, exactly. I think it's the best route for them into the into this renewable market. Um, it will obviously then give them a really good case for creating green hydrogen with a lot of these projects. When we've seen green hydrogen as a reason within some of the pl- early plans for these projects already, so I think that's that's a really positive thing there. I think. Can, we, can yeah. we do? Can we create green? Can we do green hydrogen from um, seawater? Is that is that close enough to being uh, a reality? Uh, it's not being it, so. It's something that people are developing. Um, I can't remember the name of the companies that are developing it off the top of my head, but it's something that hasn't been achieved at scale yet. It's something that, but it's definitely something that by the time that these projects come online in 2035 is an engineering problem that of may course. well have been solved. Um, all right. So 2028 to 2035, all this comes on stream. Yeah, you, know, you can imagine it. Instead of saying to the UK. Yeah, we're going to have to, UK energy companies, yeah, we're going to have to buy some uh, gas, some very expensive gas imported from America to fulfil our capacity market. They say, well, actually, we can import some from Scotland. They've got plenty. And we're going to bring out electricity down here. So, and you're saying that's, that currently it, it's only got the capacity for six gigawatts of uh, export, but that's that's quite a lot. Yeah, it's quite a lot, but yeah, it will need more. There's, and as I said, yeah, new facilities we need to make those massive turbines. 
as well as the, the foundations that are going to be needed. I think it's like around a thousand foundations that will be needed across all the projects, all of which will take between sort of seven and nine months to make. So there'll be need, there'll need to be serious action seen there. We'll need to see some sort of changes to the UK's contract for difference in that time frame. I mean, uh, a lot of these projects will need to be funded through that route. The planning bodies within Scotland and the environmental assessment body will need huge expansion if they're going to be, with, with this sudden pipeline expansion they've seen overnight, really. 25 gigawatts is is a huge amount of capacity to deal with the actual planning for. And so it's, I think, around, I think it might be 800,000 square kilometres um, that, they've, that they've planned around. So it's a lot of, a lot of sea to evaluate. Um, but we do say to countries, if you've got a natural resource, exploit it properly. And this is this seems to be a case of Scotland acknowledging that. Yes, definitely. Uh, and I think it's yeah, a huge opportunity for Scotland. I think it's also a, almost a direct way of them replacing their dependence on on oil and gas exploration, uh, which they've histor- historically done a lot of in the North Sea. I think this is a way of saying we're not going to value our North Sea based on its oil and gas reserves. We're going to base it on its floating wind potential. And that's something that we've definitely seen through this crown estate lease. Okay. Will, they, will, will they be making money in the future? Or I could say we as a, on the British scale, um, exporting that power to Germany. Um, it's not something that's been planned yet. I mean, Germany have got a lot of agreements on the other countries for imports of power. But I think the first port of call obviously is going to be the UK. Um, and then looking beyond that, then it, it will be back into Europe, but it'll probably be through the UK itself. OK. Right. Not not so much through a North Sea network. And I have another question, which is, does this mean that there isn't much uh, R&D still to be done on floating wind? It's basically mature now. Um, it's a good question. I think obviously there's always going to be R&D going into the, the platforms themselves. And as, until we've seen them deployed at the scale that we're proposing in Scotland, there's obviously going to be R&D in how we can minimise the costs. But it's the I think confidence as well, the, the confidence of, of making those deals. You know, that that speaks a lot. Yeah, but I mean, one of the things that if you talk to someone who builds um, floating platforms, one of the things they'll say is, look, this is going to take a very short period of time before floating is cheaper than fixed uh, fixed bottom offshore wind because you can make it in a you have to have a deep harbour. You make it in a deep harbour, you just tow it out pin it to the to the um uh, to the bottom of the sea it's and if you want to make if, if something breaks you just tow it back and fix it in harbor uh so no special ships um no special cranes you don't have to build it out at, at sea in hospital in hospitable times when suddenly the weather might make you you know your crew stop working um you don't have to have people offshore for months and months while you build them they're just they're doing their jobs in 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 a harbor and eventually that will lead to floating being really, really cheap. And the countries and the companies that, that, that achieve that will win all the contracts around the world. And let's um, just move on. So um, I've got a couple of other things I want to talk about. But, but Simon, have you, you've read the issue. Um, you give us your uh, kind of bird's eye view of what caught your eye. Well, it's in the world of renewables this week, a little item about a Chinese solar inverter manufacturer called Jinlang Technology, who declared that even though they've had to raise their prices by 9%, sales are still booming. And and so that just got me thinking about the, the whole supply chain in the energy market. And to, to you, Andres, it how are Chinese firms coping with this? Do you think it's settling down in China? 
when I originally started covering this increase in costs in the supply chain in like early 2021, mm. I said, well, it'll all be over by the end of 2021. And I, I think I was proven wrong since because um, there was the coal shortage in September as well in China that kind of it did interfere quite a bit, however briefly. And I think now the new time frame is actually it'll be over by the end of 2022. Um, or, or possibly mostly by the middle of 22 still. So right now, it's the, the, the restrictions and the shortage is still at its peak, I would say. But uh, it is it's getting better from here. I think the, the price of polysilicon is starting to go down by you know, 1% a week again or, or so on. But I mean, every, every solar panel that's sold, every solar module that's sold needs to be inverted. So at the end of the line of panels will be an inverter. The inverter market is riding high on the back of solar. And, and I think also the storage market, the grid storage market is riding high on the back of solar. And people are building capacity. Uh, we're going to come out with a report um, uh, later this month on, on um, uh, solar capacity from Andres. People are building capacity, like they're doubling the size of the solar industry in the next two or three years, just because they, they know that the, the demand is there. So, of course, inverter manufacturers uh, also have the demand because you need to invert the um, from DC to AC uh, whenever you, you leave a, a solar module. Yeah, and chip shortages, again, are temporary. They're, they're not going to be there forever. People will rent their the, the chips once once they're stable markets. Will it bring the prices back down to what they were before, or will it bring them to even lower? You know, we, we, I would think that inverters are being redesigned and improved all the time, and where the inverters are and how intelligent they are and how they respond to remote software control, all of that is improved uh, year on year. Yeah, and the the fact that they that their price is contingent on chips now is probably quite new as well to an extent so it must be changing a lot i haven't really looked into inverters much yet but so one of the things that so when we we talked about um we talk about gigafactories a lot in in uh, in our forecasts we talk about the way the energy transition will not be achieved by one big mega project with 20 gigawatts although there will be plenty of those and they may or may not be profitable they may or may not be successful but the way that industries change are by making a unit a small unit millions of times and letting thousands of people use them in hundreds of installations and that that in the word gigafactory now has become really important to us it's not just about batteries um, batteries are, of course, we know that there are 20 gigafactories operating, another 30 coming online shortly, another 50 that have got finance, another 100 that are in planning. So we know that, that lithium-ion um, gigafactories are, are coming online. And you talked, Harry, earlier about the first gigafactory for ITM power and, and that, that uh, electrolysis is going to be subject to gigafactories. And so are inverters. I mean, and, and, and the, the com companies that can make the most for the least with the largest amount of capacity are the, are the ones that are going to win. This is a, this is a gold rush. This is a, a scale to earn gold. So how about, why don't we, we do a, a, um, initially do a paper on um, how many gigafactories there are, just count them. And then why don't we just keep 
count of them uh, all in all the various technologies that people are making factories which are which can put output more than a gigawatt or a gigawatt hour of battery or alternative chemistry battery or gigawatt or, or uh, electrolysis or inverter power so we should be we should we should we should start that what do you think I, yeah i think, I think it's a really good it. idea i think in terms of actually um tracking the potential because i think that's the one thing that people really it's really easy to get a feel for in the industry is how much demand there is at any given time and how much demand is going to be maybe in the next two three years but i think it's really interesting to see whether or not the actual production capacity is going to be able to deal with that that's something that obviously we've seen massively in solar with Andreas's actually in the near-term forecast we've been like oh well if solar is going to grow x percent a year for the next five years can actually do that with polysilicon shortages. So I think actually tracking the production side of things is something that we really need to be on top of. Yeah, and I think I think that you heard it here within you know in six to eight weeks we'll have on our website a downloadable document that says gigafactory tracking and you'll be able to um, get the l- most recent count and we'll update that perhaps quarterly and we'll all we'll all contribute to that. It, it's it's not huge uh, effort to to track that. Um, but it is worth being able to find it in one place. So customers, uh, look out for that in the coming months rather than weeks. With that, I think we're going to wind up. Um, that actually, there's probably something I, yeah, our last little visit. I've just contemporary Amprex Energy Service Technology uh, subsidiary of Cattle uh, CATL battery swapping. Harry, I, I, I was convinced. Battery swapping is a non-starter. I think I've convinced you it's a non-starter. But they're going to put battery swapping stations uh, across 10 major Chinese cities. I'm personally not convinced that battery swapping won't materialise yet. I think it will, and it won't necessarily be across all vehicles. I think as soon as you've got people owning their own vehicle, they're not going to be like, oh, well, I'll, I'll change my battery in and out every two Oh, two, yeah, but that's, that's not how they're working. What they're going to no. say is buy the vehicle without batteries, lease the batteries from us, swap them when you like. Oh, look, the vehicle is $10,000 cheaper as a result of it. And only a company the size of CATL could do that. And possibly only in one market, only in one of the biggest markets in the world, which China is the biggest car market in the world. Yeah, and I think that is a really good way of putting it. I think, and also, I mean, it's got a huge potential in terms of in terms of fleets. I think the the demand for it really comes is when you've got people who aren't satisfied with charging at home or can't charge at home and are worried about the range. Well, multi-dwelling I I, units make that a problem in China. That, you know, 35% of all Chinese live in multi-dwelling units. It's, it's, it's a, it, you know, the parking is shared parking. If you put a load of um, recharge units in there, uh, you'll probably be queuing for days to get a, a go on the recharge unit. It, it, maybe it works in this market. Yeah, I think, and I think, you, I think you're right. I think it's something we need to keep an eye on. I think obviously we've seen companies like Tesla are really on it early on in the US and that's something that obviously they're not continuing with openly anymore but I think there's definitely a, a leasing option for batteries that could really take off in China. Um, I know that people like Fisker and, and Canoe have been trying that in, in other markets but uh, I, sure. I took a picture from their moving GIF, uh, I took a static picture and literally it shows two batteries this is much less battery space than 
than um, than a Tesla, which rolls all all the way under the bottom unit. And they they take a minute to, to take out and put a new one in. And so two minutes, and obviously you, you drive into the service station, two minutes later, you've got two new battery units, and they're talking about a range of 200 kilometers. So you, you can drive across China like this. You can drive from one city to the next city to the next city, swapping your batteries. Uh, perhaps, uh, and they've got a good density of uh, recharges, but you can also recharge them. That, that's the thing they're saying is because they can standardize on the type of battery, because they can standardize on the batteries in cars, because CATL has such a strong grip of the Chinese market. They're saying you can charge these up at home. You can charge these up anywhere. You can charge them at a fast unit or you can just drop them off and swap them and go. You can do both. It's all part of the same lease. So I'm finding that I'm, I'm less convinced that there's no future for um, battery swapping as, than I was before. Um, so we'll, we'll again, we'll watch that market and we'll see if that actually develops. Um, with that, we're definitely uh, the the issue is at rethinkresearch.biz. Click energy, read the weekly analysis. Uh, anyone can do that and and read all the stories. The people should be subscribing to our forecast and data service, $4,600. You get you start off with that hydrogen report and you get um, a dozen or so reports and another 20 odd research papers throughout the year uh, and access to all the archive. Go there now, spend money, spend wisely. Thank you very much.